Chapter 8 of Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Sapp. Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. Chapter 8 A Smart Engagement. After pushing the boat out into the stream, Terence and his companion allowed it to drift quietly for some distance and then getting out the oars rowed hard until they were beyond the mouth of the river the tide was they thought by the level of the water where they had embarked within an hour or two of flood they therefore determined to shape their course to the north of the point where they believed jersey to lie so that when the tide turned it would sweep them down upon it the wind was too light to be of any assistance but the stars were bright and the position of the north star served as a guide to the direction they should take it had taken them some considerable time to launch the boat, and they calculated that it was nearly midnight when they left the mouth of the river. There was no occasion to row hard, for until it became daylight and they could see the island of Jersey, they could not shape their course with any certainty, and could only hope that by keeping to the north of it, they would not find in the morning that the tide had taken them too far to the south. We are very lucky in our weather, Terence said, as after laboring at the heavy oars for a couple of hours, they paused for a few minutes' rest. If it had been a strong wind, it would never have done for us to have started. I believe in bad weather there are tremendous currents about the islands, and desperately rough water. A fog would have been even worse for us. As it is, it seems to me we cannot go very far wrong. I suppose the tide is about turning now, but if by daylight we find that we have been carried a long way past the island, we shall soon have the tide turning again, which will take us back to it. I am more afraid of falling in with the French privateer than I am of missing the island. There are sure to be some of them at Granville, to say nothing of saint Malo. I don't suppose any of those at Granville will put out in search of us, merely to please the mayor. But if any were going to see, they would be sure to keep a lookout for us. If they did see us, we should have no chance of getting away, Terence. This boat is not so big as the one we stole at Bayonne, but it rows much heavier. There is one thing, even a privateer could not sail very fast in this light wind, and if it freshens in the morning, we can get up the sail. Then I hope it will get up a bit, Ryan said. For another five or six hours rowing, with these basely oars, my hands will be raw. I'm sure my back and arms will be nearly broken. We must risk that, Dick. We calculated fifteen miles in a straight line across New Jersey so that we must jog along at the rate of a couple of miles an hour to get far enough to the west. Now then, let us be moving again. The night seemed interminable to them, and they felt relieved indeed when morning began to break. In another half hour, it would be light enough for them to see for a considerable distance. Unshipping their oars, they stood up and looked round. That must be Jersey, Terence exclaimed, pointing to the north. The current must have taken us past it as I was afraid of would. What time is it, Dick? Nearly eight. Then the tide must be turning already. The island must be six miles away now. If we row hard, we shall know, in a half an hour, whether we are being carried north or south. But we must be going north if tide has turned, Tenants. I don't know. I remember that the mate of the seahorse said that, in the channel, the course of the current did not change at high and low water so there is no saying what way we are going at present. Well, there is a little more wind, 
I suppose we had better get up our sail. There is Jersey, and whether we get there a little sooner or a little later cannot make much difference. I am sure we are both too tired to row her much faster than we could sail. Terence agreed, and they accordingly stepped the mast and hoisted their sail. At first the boat moved but slowly through the water, but the wind was freshening, and in half an hour she was foaming along. Tide is against us still, Terence said presently. I don't think we are any nearer Jersey than when we first saw it. Look there, Ryan exclaimed a few minutes later. There is a lugger coming out from the direction of Granville. So there is, Dick, and with the wind behind her, she won't be very long before she is here. I should say that she is about six or seven miles off, and an hour will bring her up to us. I will get out in our tents. That will help us a bit. We can change about occasionally. Terence was steering with the other oar while he held the sheet. The boat was traveling at a good rate, but the lugger was fast running down towards them. There is a schooner coming out from Jersey, Terence exclaimed joyously. If she is a British privateer, we may be saved yet. I had just made up my mind that we were in for another French prison. Ryan looked over his shoulder. She is farther off than the lugger, he said. Yes, but the current that is keeping us back is helping her on towards us. It will be a close thing, but I agree with you. I'm afraid the lugger will be here first. Change seats with me. I will have a spell at the oar. He was a good deal stronger than Ryan, and he felt comparatively fresh after his hour's rest, so there was a perceptible increase in the boat's speed after the change had been effected. When the lugger was within a mile of them, and the schooner about double that distance, the former changed her course a little and bore up as if to meet the schooner. Hurrah! Ryan shouted. The Frenchman is making for the schooner, and if the Jersey boat don't turn and run, there will be a fight. The lugger looks to me the bigger boat, Terence said as he stopped rowing for a moment. However, we are likely to be able to slip off while they are at it. Rapidly, the two vessels approached each other, and when within a mile, a puff of smoke broke out from the lugger's bow, and was answered almost instantly by one from the schooner. Running fast to the water, the vessels were soon within a short distance of each other. Terence had ceased rowing, for there was no fear that the lugger, which is now abeam of them, would give another thought to the small boat. The fight was going on in earnest, and the two vessels poured broadsides into each other as they passed, the lugger wearing round at once and engaging the schooner broadside to broadside. The Frenchman has the heavier metal, Terence said. I'm afraid the schooner will get the worst of it. The lugger is crowded with men, too. What do you say, Dick? Shall we do our best to help the schooner? I think we ought to, Ryan agreed at once. She has certainly saved us, and I think we ought to do what we can. Accordingly, he brought the boat nearer to the wind. The two vessels were now close-hauled, and were moving but slowly to the water. The boat passed two or three hundred yards astern of the lugger, sailed a little farther, and then, when able to lay her course for the schooner, went about and bore down towards her. Just as they did so, the halyards of the schooner's mainsail were shot asunder, and the sail ran down the mast. There was a shout of triumph on the lugger, and she at once closed in towards her crippled adversary. They are going to try and carry the schooner by boarding, Terence exclaimed. Keep her as close as she will go, Dick. And seizing his oar again, he began to row with all his might. By the time they came up, the two vessels were side by side, the guns had ceased their fire, 
but there was a rattle of pistol shots, mingled with the clash of arms and the shouts of the combatants. Running up to the schooner's side, Terence and Ryan clambered on the channel and sprung onto the deck of the schooner. A desperate fight was going on forward, where the two vessels touched each other. There was no one aft. Here, some fifteen or twenty feet of water separated the ships, and even the helmsman had left the wheel to join in the fight. About half the lugger's crew had made their way onto the deck of the schooner, but the Jersey men were still fighting stoutly. The rest of the lugger's crew were gathered in the bow of their own vessel, waiting until there should be a clear enough space left for them to join their comrades. Things look bad, Terence exclaimed. The French crew are a great deal stronger. Lend me a hand to turn two of these eight-pounders round. There are plenty of cartridges handy. They drew the cannon back from their places, turned them round, loaded them with a charge of powder, and then rammed in two of the bags of bullets that were lying beside them. The schooner stood higher out of the water than the lugger, and they were able to train the two cannon so that they bore upon the mass of Frenchmen in the latter's bow. Take a steady aim, Terence said. We are only just in time. Our fellows are being beaten back. A moment later, the two pieces were fired. Their discharge took terrible effect among the French, sweeping away more than half of those gathered in the lugger's bow. Load again, Terence exclaimed. They are too strong for the Jersey men still. For a moment, the French boarders had paused, but now, with a shout of fury, they fell upon the crew of the schooner, driving them back foot by foot towards the stern. The cannon were now trained directly forward, and when the crowd of fighting men approached them, Terence shouted in French to the Jersey men to fall back on either side. The captain, turning round and seeing the guns pointing forward, repeated the order in a stentorian shout. The Jersey men left to one side or the other, and the moment they were clear, the two cannon poured their contents into the midst of the French, who had paused for a moment, surprised at the sudden cessation of resistance. Two clear lanes were swept through the crowd, and then with a shout, the captain of the scooter and his crew fell upon the Frenchmen. Ryan was about to rush forward when Terence said, No, no, Ryan, load again. Better make sure. The heavy loss they had suffered, however, so discouraged the French that many at once turned and running back jumped on the deck of the lugger while the others, though still resisting, were driven after them. As soon as the guns were reloaded, they were trained, as before, to bear on the lugger's bow, and as the French were driven back, they were again fired. This completed the discomfiture of the enemy, and with loud shouts, the Jerseymen followed them onto the deck of their own ship. Terence and Ryan now ran forward, snatched up a couple of cutlasses, and joined their friends, and were soon fighting in the front line. But the French resistance was now almost over. Their captain had fallen, and in five minutes, the last of them threw down their arms and surrendered, while a great shout went up from the crew of the schooner. The French flag was hauled down, and as soon as the prisoners had been sent below, an ensign was brought from the schooner, fixed the flag to the halliards above the tricolor, and the two hoisted together. The captain had already turned to the two men who had come so opportunely to his assistance. I do not know who you are or where you come from, men, but you were certainly saved us from capture. I did not know it was the Annette until it was too late to draw off, or I should not have engaged her, for she is the strongest lugger that sails out of Granville, and carries double our weight of metal with twice as strong a crew. But whoever you are, I thank you most heartily. I am half owner of the schooner, and should have lost all I was worth. 
to say nothing of perhaps having to pass the next five years in a French prison. We are two British officers, Terence said. We escaped from a French prison, and were making our way to Jersey when we saw that lugger coming after us, and should certainly have been captured had you not come up. So we thought the least we could do was to lend you a hand. Well, gentlemen, you have certainly saved us. Jacques Bontemps, the captain of the Annette, was an old acquaintance of mine. He commanded a smaller craft before he got the Annette, and we have had two or three fights together. So it was you whom I saw on that little boat. Of course we made out that the lugger was chasing you, though why they should be doing so we could not tell. But we thought no more about you after the fight once began, and were as astonished as the Frenchmen when you swept their bow. I just glanced round and saw what looked like two French fishermen, and thought that you must be two of the lugger's crew who, for some reason or other, had turned the guns against their own ship. It will be a triumph indeed for us when we enter St. Helier. The Annette has been the terror of our privateers. Fortunately, she was generally away cruising, and many a prize has she taken into Granville. I have had the luck to recapture two of them myself, but when she is known to be at home, we most of us keep in port, for she is a good deal more than a match for any craft that sails out from St. Helier. She only went into Granville yesterday, and I thought that there was no fear of her being out again, for a week or so. When I saw her, I took her for a smaller lugger that sails from the port, and which is no more than a match for us. The fact is, we were looking at her chasing you, and wondering if we should be in time, instead of noticing her size. It was not until she fired that first broadside that we found we had caught a tartar. We should have run if there had been a chance of getting away, but she is a wonderfully fast boat, and we knew that our only chance was to knock away one of her masts. And now we will be making sail again. You must excuse me for a few minutes. In half an hour the main halyards had been repaired, and the sail hoisted. When the other damages were made good, the captain, with half his crew, went on board the lugger, and the two vessels sailed together for Jersey. Terence and his companion had accompanied the captain. Now, gentlemen, you may as well come down with me into the cabin. It is likely enough that you'll be able to find some clothes in Bon Temps' chest that will fit you. He was a dandy in his way. At any rate, his clothes will suit you better than those you have on. They found indeed that the luggage captain had so large a store of clothing that they had no difficulty whatever in rigging themselves out. While they were changing, the captain had left them. He returned presently with a beaming face. She is a more valuable price than I hoped for, he said. She is almost full to the hatches with the plunder she has taken in her last cruise. I cannot make out what led her to come out of Granville, unless it was in pursuit of you. I expect that was it, Terence said. We were arrested by the mayor of Granville, and had to tie him and one of his officials up. He was a pompous little man, and no doubt when he got free, went down to the port and persuaded the captain of the lugger to put out at once to endeavor to find us. I expect he told him that we were prisoners of importance, either English spies or French emigres. Well, Captain, I am glad that the capture has turned out well for you. You certainly ought to share it, the captain said, for if it had not been for you, matters would have gone all the other way, and we should have undoubtedly been captured. Oh, we don't want to share it. We have helped you to avoid a French prison, but you have certainly saved us from the same thing, so we are fairly quits. Well, we shall have time to talk about that when we get into port. In the meantime, we will search Jacques's lockers. 
Like enough, there may be something worth having there. Of course, he may have taken it ashore directly he landed, but it's hardly likely, and as he has evidently captured several British merchantmen while he has been out, he is sure to have some gold and valuables in the lockers. The search indeed brought to light four bags of money, each marked with the name of an English ship. They contained in all over 800 pounds, with several gold watches, rings, and other valuables. No, gentlemen, the captain said, at least you will divide this money with me. The Annette and the cargo below hatches are certainly worth ten times as much, and I must insist upon your going shares with me. I shall feel very hurt if you will not do so. I thank you, Captain, Terence said, and I will not refuse your offer. We shall have to provide ourselves with new uniforms and take a passage out to Portugal, which is where our regiments are at present, so the money will be very useful. And I see you have not a watch, monsieur. You had better take one of these. Thanks. I parted with mine to a good woman who helped me to escape from Bayonne, so I will accept that offer also. In two hours, the schooner entered the port of St. Helier. The lugger, under easy sail, followed in her wake. They were greeted with enthusiastic cheers by the crowd that gathered on the quays, as soon as it was seen that the prize was the dreaded Annette, which had for some months past been a terror to the privateers and fishermen of the place and that she should have been captured by the surf seemed marvellous indeed. A British officer was on the quay when they got alongside. He came on board at once. The governor has sent me to congratulate you in his name, Captain Teniers, he said, on having captured a vessel double your own size, which has for some time been the terror of these waters. He will be glad if you will give me some particulars of the action, and you will, when you can spare time afterwards, go up and give him a full report of it. I owe the capture entirely to these two gentlemen, who were officers in your army. They had escaped from a French prison, and were making for this port when I first saw them this morning, with the Annette in hot chase after them. It did not strike me that it was her, for it was only last night that the news came in that she had been seen yesterday sailing towards Granville, and I thought that she was the Lyon, which is a boat our own size. I came up before she had overhauled the boat, and directly the fight began, I could see the mistake I had made, but as she was a good deal faster than we were, it was of no use running. There was just a chance that I might cripple her and get away. He then related the incidents of the fight. Well, I congratulate you, gentlemen, the officer said heartily. You have indeed done a good turn to Captain Teniers. To whom have I the pleasure of speaking? My name is O'Connor, replied Terence. I have the honor to be on Sir Arthur Wellesley's staff and had the rank of captain in our army, but am a colonel in the Portuguese service. This is Lieutenant Ryan of His Majesty's Mayo Fusiliers. The officer looked a little doubtful while Terence was speaking. It was difficult to believe that the young fellow, of one or two and twenty at the outside, could be a captain on Lord Wellington's staff, for Sir Arthur had been raised to the peerage after the Battle of Talavera, still less that he should be a colonel in the Portuguese service. However, he bowed gravely and said, My name is Major Chalmers of the 35th. I am an adjutant to the governor. If it will not be inconvenient, I shall be glad if you will return with me and report yourselves to him. We are quite ready, Terence said. We have nothing to do in the way of packing up, for we have only the clothes we stand in, which were indeed the property of the captain of the lugger, who was killed in the action. Telling Captain Teniers that they would be coming down again when they had seen the governor, the two friends accompanied the officer. 
very few words were said on the way, for the major entertained strong doubts whether Terence had not been hoaxing him, and whether the account he had given of himself was not altogether fictitious. On arriving at the governor's, he left them for a few minutes in the ante-room, while he went in and gave the account he had received from the captain of the manner in which the lugger had been captured, and said that the two gentlemen who had played so important a part in the matter were, as they said, one of them an officer of the staff of Lord Wellington, and a colonel in the Portuguese army, and the other a subaltern in the Mayo Fusiliers. "'What do you say as they said, Major? Have you any doubt about it?' "'My only reason for doubting is that they are both young fellows of about twenty, which would accord well enough with the claim of one of them to be a lieutenant, but that the other should be a captain on Lord Wellington's staff, and a colonel in the Portuguese service, is quite incredible.' It would seem so, certainly, Major. However, it is evident that they have both behaved extraordinarily well in this fight with the Annette, and I cannot imagine that, whatever story a young fellow might tell to civilians, he would venture to assume a military title to which he had no claim, on arrival at a military station. Will you please ask them to come in? At any rate, their story will be worth hearing. Good day, gentlemen, he went on as Terence and Ryan entered. I have to congratulate you very heartily upon the very efficient manner in which you assisted in the capture of the French privateer that has, for some time, been doing great damage among the islands. She has been more than a match for any of our privateers here, and although she has been chased several times by the cruisers, she has always managed to get away. And now may I ask how you happened to be approaching the island in a small boat at the time that the encounter took place? Certainly, sir. We are both prisoners at Bayonne. I myself have been captured by the French when endeavoring to cross the frontier into Portugal with my regiment, while Lieutenant Ryan was wounded at Talavera, and was in the hospital there when the Spaniards left the town, and the French marched in. What is your regiment, Colonel O'Connor? It is called the Minho Regiment, sir, and consists of two battalions. We have had the honor of being mentioned in general orders more than once, and were so on the day after the first attack of Victor upon Duncan's brigade, stationed on the hill forming the left of the British position at Talavera. The governor looked at his adjutant, who, rising, went to a table on which were a pile of official gazettes. Picking out one, he handed it to the governor, who glanced through it. "'Here is the general order of the day,' he said, "'and assuredly Lord Wellington speaks in the very highest terms of the service that Colonel O'Connor and the Minho Regiment under his command rendered. Certainly very high praise indeed.' You will understand, sir, that we are obliged to be cautious here, and it seems so strange that so young an officer should obtain the rank of colonel that I was curious to know how it could have occurred. I am by no means surprised that it should seem strange to you that I should hold the rank I claim. I was, like my friend Lieutenant Ryan, in the Mayo Fusiliers when I had the good fortune to be mentioned in dispatches in conjunction with an affair in which the transport that took us out to Portugal was engaged with two French privateers. In consequence of the mention, General Fane appointed me one of his aides-de-camp, and I acted in that capacity during the campaign that ended at Coruna. I was left on the field insensible on the night after the battle. When I came to myself, the army was embarking, so I made my way through Galatia into Portugal, and on reaching Lisbon was appointed by Sir John Craddock to his staff, and was sent by him on a mission to the northern frontier of Portugal. On the way, I took the command of a body of freshly raised Portuguese levies, who were without an officer or leader of any kind. With the aid of a small escort with me, 
I formed them into a reliable regiment, and had the good fortune to do so in service with them. I was therefore confirmed in my command, and was given Portuguese rank. Sir Arthur Wellesley, on succeeding Sir John Craddock in the supreme command, still kept my name on the headquarters staff, thereby adding greatly to my authority, and continued me in the independent command of my regiment. After Talavera, we were dispatched to aid the Spaniards in holding the pass of Banos, but before we arrived there, Soult had crossed the pass, and being cut off by his force from rejoining the army, I determined to cross the mountains into Portugal. In doing so, we came upon a French division on its march to Placencia, and the company of my regiment, with which I was, were cut off and taken prisoners. Forgive me for having doubted you, Colonel O'Connor. I should, of course, have remembered your name. In his report of his operations before and subsequent to the Battle of Talavera, Lord Wellington mentions more than once that his left during his advance was covered by the partisan corps of Wilson and O'Connor, and mentions, too, that it was by messengers from Colonel O'Connor that he first learned how formidable a force was in his rear, and was therefore able to cross the Tagus and escape from his perilous position. Of course, it never entered my mind that the officer who had rendered such valuable service was so young a man. There is only one mystery left. How was it, when you and Mr. Ryan escaped from Bayonne, that you were found in a boat in the Bay of Saint-Malo? It does seem a rather roundabout way of rejoining, Terence said with a smile. We escaped in a boat and made along the north coast of Spain, but, when off Santander, were blown out to sea in a gale, and were picked up by a French privateer. We were supposed to be two Spanish fishermen, and, as the privateer was short of boats, they took ours and enrolled us among their crew. They were on their way to Brest, and we took an opportunity to desert, and made our way on foot until we reached the mouth of the River Seine, and made off in a boat last night. This morning we saw the privateer in chase of us, and should certainly have been recaptured had not the surf come up and engaged her. While the fight was going on, we had gone on board the schooner, unperceived by either party, and took what seemed to us the best way of aiding our friends, who were getting somewhat the worst of it, the crew of the lugger being very much stronger than the crew of the schooner. Well, I hope that you will both at once take up your quarters with me as long as you stay here, and I shall have an opportunity of hearing of your adventures more in detail. Thank you very much, sir. We shall be very happy to accept your kind invitation, but I hope we shall not trespass upon your hospitality long for we are anxious to be off as soon as possible so as to rejoin without loss of time. I am particularly so, for, although it will be two or three months before there is any movement of the troops, I am afraid of finding someone else appointed to the command of my regiment, and I have been so long with it now that I should be sorry indeed to be put to any other work. That I can quite understand. Well, there is no regular communication from here, but there is not a week passes without some craft or other sailing from here to Weymouth. We would rather, if possible, be put on board some ship on her way to Portugal, Terence said. If we landed in England, we should have to report ourselves and might be sent to a depot, and be months before we got out there again. I spoke to the captain of the surf about it this morning, and he was good enough to promise that, as soon as he had repaired damages, he would run out into the bay and put us on board the first ship he overhauled bound for the peninsula. That would be an excellent plan from your point of view, the governor said. Teniers is one of the best sailors on the island, and has several times carried dispatches for me to Weymouth. You could not be in better hands. Four days later, the schooner was ready to sail. 
This will be my last voyage in her, the captain said. I have had an offer for her, and shall sell her as soon as I come back again, as I shall take the command of the Annette. I ought to do well in her, for her rig and build are so evidently French that I shall be able to creep up close to any French vessel making along the coast, or returning from abroad, without being suspected of being an enemy. Of course, I shall have to carry a much stronger crew than at present, and I hope to clip the wings of some of these French privateers before long. They had, on the day of their landing, ordered new uniforms and had purchased a stock of underclothing. They were fortunate in being able to pick up swords and belts, and all were now ready for them, and on the fifth day after landing, they said goodbye to the governor and sailed on board the surf. When twenty-four hours out, the vessel lay to being now on the track of ships bound south. On the following day, they overhauled six vessels, and the last of these was bound with military stores for Lisbon. Terence and Ryan were transferred to her with a hearty adieu to the skipper, and took their places in the boat and were rowed to the vessel, being greeted on their departure by a loud and hearty cheer from the crew of the privateer. There were no passengers aboard the store ship, and they had an uneventful voyage until she dropped anchor in the Tagus. After paying the captain the small sum he charged for their passage, they landed. They first went to a hotel and put up. On sallying out, Ryan had no difficulty in learning that the Mayo Fusiliers were at Porta la Grey. Terence took his way to headquarters. The first person he met on entering was his old acquaintance, Captain Nelson, now wearing the equipments of a major. The latter looked at him inquiringly and then exclaimed, Why, it is O'Connor! Why, I thought you were a prisoner! I am delighted to see you! Where have you sprung from? I escaped from Bayonne, and after sundry adventures, landed an hour ago. In the first place, what has been done with my regiment? It is with Hill's division, which is at Abrantes and Porta Legre. Who is in command? Your friend Herrera. No British officer has been appointed in your place. There was some talk of handing it over to Trant in the spring, but, as nothing can be done before that, no one has yet been nominated. I am glad indeed to hear it. I have been fidgeting about it ever since I went away. Well, I will take you into the adjutant general at once. I heard him speak more than once of the services you rendered by sending news that Salt and Ney were both in the valley, and so enabling Lord Wellington to get safely across the Tagus. He said it was an invaluable service. Of course Harara reported your capture, and that you had sacrificed yourself and one of the companies to secure the safety of the rest. Now come in. This is Colonel O'Connor, sir, Major Nelson said as he entered the adjutant general's room. I cannot resist the pleasure of bringing him in to you. He has just escaped from Bayonne and landed an hour ago. I am glad to see you indeed, the adjutant general said, rising and shaking Terence warmly by the hand. The last time we met was on the day when Victor attacked us in the afternoon after sending the Spaniards flying. You rendered us good service that evening, and still greater by acquainting the commander-in-chief of the large force that had gathered in his rear, a force at least three times as strong as we had reckoned on. A day later, and we should have been overwhelmed. As it was, we had just time to cross the Tagus before they were ready to fall upon us. I am sure Lord Wellington will be gratified indeed to hear that you are back again. I suppose you would like to return to your command of the Minho Regiment? I should prefer that to anything else, Terence said, though of course I am ready to undertake any other duty that you might entrust to me. 
No, I think it would be for the good of the service that you should remain as you are. The difficulty of obtaining anything like accurate information of the strength and position of the enemy is one of the greatest we have to contend with, and indeed, were it not for Transcommand and yours, we should be almost in the dark. Please sit down for a minute. I will inform Lord Wellington of your return. End of chapter 8 Recording by Charles Sapp